Bill and Preston and Roger were real gracious. They told me Thursday night that I was speaking today, so that... in the midst of trying to do taxes. Yeah. One of the few times I wasn't able to blame Pat. It's nice to be off the hook for a change. It won't last. It's really funny because um, the, I, I, I go to a, a, a fellowship that's called BSF, Bible Study Fellowship, and it takes place on Monday night, and there are probably about 500 men that go to it. And um, you break up into small groups of about 15, 16, 17 so um, there are a number of different small group leaders. And uh, I have one of the small groups, and... Uh, during the, the time of the lesson, one of the guys was talking about how he had always been so afraid of persecution when things get really, really tough that he, he just didn't think he could, he could handle it. And so we talked about it a little bit, and I said, well, I don't know what... You know, I said, everybody's going to be afraid. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to go through torture or anything like that. But you have to understand, as best you can, that it's not going to last very long. And, and eternity is a long, long time, and suffering is a very short period of time. And quite frankly, I don't know what the big attraction to this life is right now. You know, I, I wouldn't mind going tomorrow. I said, right now would be good. But nobody wants to suffer, and so we just talked about it. And I got an email from him saying that he really appreciated the talk that we had because he was seeing things in a different light for the first time in his life. So you, you don't know what's going to happen with things, and um, obviously nobody is looking forward to difficulties. Nobody wants to go through hard things. But if you know that there's a purpose and you know that God never leaves you and he never forsakes you, then you can do it when you have to. Mm. And we can do it when we have to, not because we're strong, but because the one that lives in us is strong. Mm. And we just always have to remember that, even in the midst of things we don't think we're able to endure. Mm. So hopefully, if and when something like that comes, we can do it. Mm. I'm going to eventually be in the book of John in just a few minutes, and um, it won't be long. The word ordinary, it means normal. It means common. It means unexceptional. It means average. That's what ordinary means. The word radical it comes from the Latin word radix, which means root, the core. And it also means fundamental. It means essential, and it means extreme. So we've got ordinary, which means average, unexceptional, and we've got radical, which means extreme. 
The ordinary Christian life is not the opposite of the radical Christian life. The ordinary Christian life is a radical life. The ordinary Christian life is a life of daily trusting Christ, of daily repenting of our sins, of daily abiding or remaining in Christ, of daily dying to self, of daily loving God and loving our neighbors. It's daily taking up the cross and following Jesus. It's daily proclaiming the gospel to ourselves, to our families, in the workplace, in our communities, to our friends. Every Christian is an ordinary Christian, and every Christian is a radical Christian. Because every Christian is living for Christ, and living for Christ is a normal, common, everyday thing, and it's also radical. It's foundational, it's essential, and it's extreme. And they're not supposed to be two different things. They're supposed to be the same. The ordinary Christian is not a complacent, a passionless, or casual Christian. Instead, every Christian is a radical because every Christian is united to Christ by faith and it's going to bear fruit. It's going to bear living fruit. Every Christian's not a foreign missionary, but every Christian's on a mission. We're on a mission when we get out of bed, when we get out of bed every morning. It doesn't matter whether we go across the world or whether we go across the street. It doesn't matter whether we go whether we eat with our family, whether we go to work, whether we go to class. Every Christian is called out of darkness and into the light. And then he's called to go back into the darkness to shine wherever God has placed you. And wherever God's placed us, we're called to be radically faithful, radically diligent, and radically shining as light in a dark world. If we're called to go, then we're supposed to go in a radical manner. If we're called to stay, we're called to stay in a radical manner. The ordinary way, the normal way Christ has ordained, all through history, God has used ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Ordinary Christians are always have to go, are always going to have to fight against lukewarm Christianity. Lukewarm means it's not hot and it's not cold; it's in the middle. And God has a lot of things to say in the Bible about being lukewarm. Mainly, he says, I will spit it out of my mouth. 
because he wants you to be on fire for him. Lukewarm means, "Eh, I don't care. It could be, maybe yes, maybe no. God doesn't want people like that. He wants you to know the truth and to live in the truth day after day. Ordinary Christians are always going to fight against Christianity that does not have any passion. The love of God and the glory of God calls us us to serve an extraordinary God in our ordinary ways day after day. Let me read a psalm to you, part of a psalm. Psalm 34, the first nine verses, says this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for in those who fear him, there's no want. confidence in the character of God we begin our downward fall when that happens we get all mixed up about what God is like and the only way back is to have a restored confidence in God and the only way to do that is to have a restored knowledge of God we need to know God as he has revealed himself in the word of God. If we don't know God, or we don't know what kind of God he is, we're not going to have confidence in anything that he says. If we can't trust what he says, then we no longer, then he no longer influences our lives in any kind of a meaningful way. It's absolutely necessary that we know this God that John the Apostle wrote about. John tells us who Jesus is, and Jesus tells us he is the exact representation of God. He says that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. He says, no one comes to the Father but by me. So exactly who does Jesus say that he is? in the Gospel of John. Years ago, 
a prominent psychiatrist said, there are only two great questions in the world. Who am I and where am I going? Those are really good questions, but they're not the greatest question or the most important question. There's another question, and how we answer that question determines who we are and where we're going. The question is the same one that Jesus asked Peter in the gospel. He asked this question about to Peter when all the people of Israel were saying different things about Jesus. Some were saying he's a, he's a, he's a prophet. Some were saying he's John the Baptist returned. Some were saying he's Isaiah. Some were saying he's Ezekiel or Jeremiah. And then Jesus turned to Peter and he said, Peter, but who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer was, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So the question for all of us and for the whole world is, who do you say Jesus is? And our answer has eternal significance and consequences. If we agree with Peter, then our sins are washed away because of our trust in Christ, and we will spend eternity in the presence and the joy of the Lord. If our answer is anything else, then the consequences are terrible and eternal. John says, he wrote his gospel, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So what did Jesus say about himself? What did he say about himself that we must believe? How did he, Jesus describe himself? In the sixth chapter of John, he described himself in this way. In verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. The day before Jesus made this statement, he had fed 5,000 people. Excuse me, the scripture actually says 5,000 men. But if you add in the women and children, which it doesn't mention, there were probably 10,000 people. And he fed them with five barley loaves, and barley loaves were little small loaves that, a, that a, a child had with him, and two small fish. And when they finished, or when he finished feeding these 10,000 people probably, they took up baskets of the leftovers, 12 baskets. No wonder that didn't make sense. I had two pages together. Afterwards, after the feeding, Jesus went up to the top of the mountain to be alone. And his disciples 
that evening got into a boat and went to the other side of the lake that they were on. John 6, 16 through 25. Let me read that to you. It says, So when evening came, the disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The next day the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that the disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? The question they didn't ask is they really wanted to ask is, how did you get here? You didn't take a boat. You're on the other side of the lake. How did you get here? They didn't ask that, but that was the unspoken question that they wanted to ask. And then Jesus spends a few verses telling the people, you're not really after me. You're not really coming to look for me because you believe in me. You're coming to look for me because I fed you and you want somebody to feed you all the time. You're just interested in the physical. You're interested in satisfying your bodies. And then if we pick it back up in verse 30, it says, So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? In other words, Jesus It wasn't enough that you fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and a few fish. What are you going to do now? What's your next miracle? Keep us entertained. Show us some more. He says, they said, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But they said, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. 
the background of these verses is the exodus from from Egypt when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness for 40 years and for 40 years God fed them the manna or the bread from heaven every day every day except weekends where they were to gather except one day where they were to gather enough for two days because they weren't to work on the Sabbath day Forty years. And Jesus tells these people that the bread God gave them under Moses' leadership was not the true bread from heaven. The manna that came from heaven could not satisfy them except for one day at a time. The next day they got hungry all over again. It couldn't give permanent satisfaction and it couldn't give eternal life. Jesus says, He is the bread of life who grants eternal life. Eating and drinking, Jesus said, eat this bread, the bread is me, and drink this water, I'm the water of life. Eating and drinking of Jesus means coming to Jesus. It means believing in Jesus. It means listening to Jesus. It means obeying Jesus. Come and believe. Keep on coming. And keep on believing. So Jesus proclaims he is the bread of life. If we go to John 8. In this chapter we see that Jesus gives another description of who he is. Verse 12 in chapter 8 says... Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In the first chapter of John, at the very beginning, John had already said that Jesus was the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had said in Isaiah 60, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor the, nor the, dark, nor the brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. So the prophets 800 years before had said, you're going to have a person who's going to be the light. He had predicted the coming of Jesus. In 1 John 1.5, it describes the glory and the moral purity of God by stating, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. In this instance, in the 8th chapter, Jesus' words are probably a reflection of a ceremony that took place every evening in the temple court when two menorahs and the menorahs were many um, were candlesticks with many branches to it and two menorahs were lit and they were lit and um, they illuminated the whole temple court so that you could see and that 
chased away the darkness in the temple. And Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Not just Israel, but the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Later on in chapter 12, Jesus said, He that walks in darkness does not know where he's going. And often scripture uses the metaphor, the metaphor means the likeness, of darkness to illustrate spiritual blindness. If you're walking in darkness, it means, it doesn't mean you're physically blind, but it means spiritually you're blind, you don't know what you're doing, you have no understanding of true spiritual things. John 3.19 says, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. So that when Jesus says that those who follow him will not walk in darkness, he reveals himself as the only light in, by which we're able to see the truth of God. The glory of God in Christ Jesus overcomes the darkness, the darkness of sin and the darkness of death. One, one um, Christian told this story years ago. And what he says was, years ago I was driving from Dallas to Southern California. I picked up a couple of young hitchhikers. As we were driving past the entrance to the Grand Canyon, I asked them if they had ever seen the canyon. They said no. So we decided to spend the night there. It was late at night and pitch black when we turned off the road. We could not see a thing but we found what seemed to be an open space and crawled into our sleeping bags. When I awoke the next morning, the sun was up. I stretched and threw out my arms, only to find that my left arm dropped down in the void. In the darkness of the, of the dead of the night, we had actually made our bed on the edge of a cliff that dropped into the Grand Canyon. If we had gone two steps further... We would have fallen off the edge. I gave grateful thanks for the light that morning. That's what the light is for. Jesus is the light that delivers us from the darkness that leads to death. If we go to the 10th chapter of John, and obviously we're just hitting some of the points here. Jesus talks about sheepfolds. A sheepfold was, you have to understand, when you talk about Israel, sheep were everywhere. And a sheepfold was a large pen that the sheep went into at night. It was usually surrounded by brick, by stone, by wood, anything to keep the sheep safe inside the pen at night to keep them safe from robbers, to keep them safe from wolves and any other animals. And some pens were large enough to hold a thousand or two sheep. So many, many sheep went into it. There was a gatekeeper to the pen, and they paid the gatekeeper, and it was his job to keep the sheep safe at night. In the morning, the gatekeeper 
open the door to those that were in the to, to those that were the true shepherds that were coming to take their sheep out for the day. When the shepherd entered the pen, the sheepfold, the flocks were mixed, flocks from many different shepherds spending the night in the pen. But when the shepherd began to call his sheep, the sheep recognized their shepherd's voice, and they would follow him and no one else. In fact, a good shepherd had names for the sheep, and he would call the sheep by name. The sheep followed him because they knew him. John says in, in 10.5, A stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. In chapter 10, verse 6 through 10, reads, This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, and they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All those who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is the door to the sheepfold, the door to the pen that holds the sheep. That is the only way to safely keep the enemies away from God's people, from the false shepherds. Those who are his, his sheep, will follow him and they will not listen to the thieves and the robbers that come only to steal, to destroy, and to kill. Only Christ can provide protection from all that can ultimately harm us. God's people will hear his voice and they will not listen to false shepherds. And Jesus is talking mainly about the Pharisees that were leading the people astray during this period of time. Because if you look in the chapters before this, the, the Pharisees are constantly trying to destroy Jesus. They won't listen to him. They try to lead the people away from Jesus and into following them. Jesus says they're thieves and robbers. They only care about destroying the sheep. Then Jesus follows in verse 11 by saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then verses 12 through 18 He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. 
and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus compares himself to the religious leaders of the day. Jesus is the true shepherd. These other ones are hired help. They will only protect the sheep as long as it suits them. If danger comes, they will run away and abandon the sheep. They will abandon the people of God because they're only interested in themselves. They're only interested in what they can profit from their position. And Jesus says there's a bond between Jesus and his sheep, just like there's a bond between Jesus and the Father. Both are secure. Over and over in the Old Testament, there's a story of a failed king, a failed shepherd who was supposed to watch over his people, the people of Israel. And again and again, they didn't do it. They failed. They were out after themselves. They didn't care about the sheep. So God sends Jesus as the long-awaited shepherd king to fulfill his promise to give his people shepherds after his own heart. This shepherd king, Jesus, is the only way to safety and eternal life. And if we look at verse 16 again, it says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Jesus said he's got other sheep. He's got other people outside of Israel that he's going to redeem. He means the Gentiles. And who's a Gentile? A Gentile is anybody that's not a Jew. So the whole world, Jesus says, I have to include them. It's not just Israel. It's everybody else. Everybody that will believe. There's not going to be one, excuse me, there's only going to be one flock. And that one flock, this one group of sheep, are going to be those that believe in Jesus. One shepherd. In chapter 11, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, he tells us, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. In chapter 15, he says, I'm the true vine. We know who Jesus says he is. He's the bread of life who satisfies our hunger forever. He's the light of the world who destroys the darkness. He's the door to the sheepfold, the only way to God. He's the good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep, his people. And the question again for us is who do we say he is? Acts 17.30 says this, 
the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from their sins. Because he has fixed a day, he settled on one day, which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God has appointed a day where the end is then, and he has appointed one man, and he's proven who this man is by raising him from the dead, that if you don't believe that he's the bread of life, that he's the light of the world, that he's a door to the sheepfold, that the only way to God, that if you don't believe he's the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, it's too late. It's over. But if you do, there's life eternal. It depends on who do you say Jesus is. Let's pray. Lord, we know this. These are not new words to us. But Lord, a lot of times we take words and they become cloudy and faded and they don't have the life that they had at one time because we get distracted, because our minds get on so many things of this world that the things of eternity, somehow or another, Lord, we just put them... We put them on the back burner. We put them behind us and we don't focus on them. Lord, help us to focus on Jesus every day when we get up in the morning and when we walk through the day. Are we going to abide in Jesus? Are we going to remain in him? Are we going to call on his name and ask for fresh understanding, fresh obedience, and fresh repentance? We ask it, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.